0: Welcome to Today in Space. This is a segment where we, we get to talk to people who work in the industry, who are passionate about science, technology, engineering, math, and uh, today we're lucky to have Jim Cantrell on. Um, Jim, why don't you tell the folks a little bit about yourself uh, and then we'll get started into your STEM origin story and, and where the where the passion kicked off for, for what you're doing today. Sure.
1: Yeah, my name's Jim Cantrell. I've been in the business about 35 years, but I I really think of myself as a builder, a maker, and an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what that's what fascinates me and excites me is just building
0: stuff. I can relate a lot. Um, you know, I I started I think my my building started with uh injection molding, working in a machine shop with uh tool makers. uh learned a really old craft, and then I've right. got 3D printers in my basement. So I, I can I can uh definitely relate. Yeah, good, good,
1: yeah. It's uh the pleasure of building, you know, I, I, Mm. it's, it's genetic, I think, you know, I, as I look back on my ancestry, you know, they were all carpenters or builders Mm. of ores of various sorts, you know, you you begin to sort of believe a little bit in maybe the genetic story over uh, environment at some point, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I've really ever known I wanted to do in my life for sure was to race cars and build them. And uh, Mm. everything, Mm. everything else has just sort of been, an extension of that in one way or another. Yeah. And, uh, you know, ever since I was a little kid, you know, it was, uh, tear things apart. And, yeah. Uh, put it back I, together again. <laughs> right? I had a very patient mother, you know, she'd come home and find her massacred bathroom scale. You know? <laughs> Why are you doing this? Well, I wanted to find out how it worked. And, yep. you know, it was curious and I could never get it back together. <laughs> <laughs> Invariably, you know, the clips and the springs and mm-hmm. you know, my dad, he was, he was less tolerant of things like that. You know, he, I grew up in a very blue collar family and Mm. uh, he was uh, delivering uniforms, you know, and he lived with this hard reality of life compared to, you know, this, this esoteric sense of things I had, this curiosity. He he didn't share that with me at all. And uh, (laughs) he'd he'd get madder than hell. You know, as I graduated later to building these little soapbox derby cars and stealing Mm. the wheels off his lawnmowers uh, that, that, that uh, he didn't appreciate very much either.
0: so uh tell me more about like uh the first what was like the first thing that you built that that you can remember in the early years?
1: The first thing I really remember building was a fort and uh mm. sort of uh you know I think most kids did that one way or another in their like their living room with with you know blankets and things like that, and their parents mm-hmm. make clean it up later well I grew up on a on a chicken ranch down in uh, nice. Southern California, and yeah, I know it's hard to believe there were such things but you know we we had we had goats and we had pigs and cows and chickens and rabbits and there was invariably a lot of wood and things you know construction materials around and mm. and so I would uh you know drag them and you know go go get a hammer so it so says I you know we get money for my birthday or whatever I go spend it on nails and hammers you know and that's the sort of sort of thing that interested me and you know my parents again were very tolerant and eventually they'd tear it down because it was unsafe but uh <laughs> Yeah, I, I graduated to making these wood go-karts and uh, mm. that was sort of probably the second thing I really remember. And that was a long line of, of, you know, experiments. And we, we lived on this hill that had a long driveway and, and nice. it was perfect for uh, yeah. for soapbox derby cars, you know, <laughs> yeah. except yeah. get to the bottom, there's a street and how are you going to stop and not get run over? So there were technological challenges too.
0: No, that's great. I, I, I makes me, wonder how much of when anyone's in STEM is at those early years, right? I've I've talked to a few people now, and your story is very similar, and like the people who who make, they start early. All right, very exciting news here on the podcast. We have our first official sponsor that is not our own 3D printing company here funding the podcast, and support for Today in Space is brought to you by Manscaped. Who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming and, honestly, men's grooming in general here. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped recently launched the Ultimate Men's Hygiene Bundle, the performance package. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with code SPACE at manscaped.com. So again, that's twenty percent off, and free worldwide shipping. That's with inflation and the way the economy is going, and how expensive everything is in COVID time. You can get this shipped around the world for free, and get twenty percent off in the time and when you need to get this stuff off. I mean, look, I just I just literally used the Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0, and you can hear it there. It has a nice LED light; so you can actually see where you're doing it. And it actually works great as a, a beard trimmer as well. This is, this is grooming of all kinds, guys, here. So I was traveling this weekend, right? And I didn't have my Lawn Mower 4.0 yet. And I went to some place. I ended up doing the embarrassing trip to the mall to find something that could, that could trim up uh, before I went to a wedding. And as I opened this cheap thing that really wasn't going to get the job done, it didn't even have a battery that came with it. The, all the stuff that comes in here comes with a charger, uh, whether it's the lawnmower 4.0 or the weed whacker uh, for those nose hairs, which this is the best one I've used since I literally just did it. Usually it, it nicks and it and it pulls hair. I mean, look, I'm I'm Greek, 100%. There's <laughs> a lot of hair to deal with, right? Um, so these are just the right tool, right? And the thing that I think really goes really underrated is they give you this manscaped Daily News newspaper get a whole bunch of them and of course if you're shaving down there you can put it on the ground but even just in general right guys I think part of the reason why some of us don't groom is because it's so much to pick up and you're not ready for it you don't have the right tools here we're talking about getting the right tools we're talking about uh they think about all the different aspects of it right you literally put this paper down you don't have to do much cleanup after you You catch all the hair and then all you do is gather in the middle and dump it in to the trash That's how easy cleanup makes it. It's a really simple thing, but they got you covered at Manscaped. So use the code SPACE, get 20% off, and free worldwide shipping on anything. Uh, There's there's even things like the Crop Reviver and the Crop Preserver. Lots of things for your male grooming needs. Available right now. Use the code SPACE at Manscaped.com. And thank you, Manscaped, for sponsoring uh, and supporting Today in Space Podcast. Don't forget 20% off and worldwide shipping. Use code SPACE. Be less of a Wookiee and more of a Han Solo. Get it right today, folks. Manscaped.com, code word SPACE. Did the business side of things, did that mix when you were younger? Is that something you found later? Much later in life, yeah. Mm.
1: I, uh, it, it, strangely so, um, my, uh, my frustration with the the Utah State University and their space dynamics lab that I worked at as a as a graduate student and their lack of business sense sort mm-hmm. of drove me to try and you know understand how business was really supposed to work. I just knew that that one was broken. Right. Ah, and
0: yeah. As,
1: as I look back on it years later, you know, university environment really isn't a business environment at all. But mm-hmm. I had this sense that it ought to be. And uh, you know, I was intent on fixing it. And then uh my my first wife and I started a recycling company mm. uh curbside recycling company back in uh I guess it was ninety two something like that and uh that 's when I really started learning about business and you know how you uh have you have to have cash flow and how you uh have have to have employees that actually do something and and uh, all the sort of mm. things that employees can do when you 're not looking and <laughs> 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 the, the, the equipment that they break and you know how expensive equipment is and yeah turn on and on and how to collect money from people. So, so, you know, gradually that became second nature. And what I, what I discovered Mm -hmm. was being in business gave me freedom and it it gave me a freedom from what I considered, uh, you know, the stupidity of certain people. And uh, it it seemed like there was, I know this seems very arrogant, but you know, in my, in my twenties, it seemed like the world was run by people that just really didn't know what the hell was going on, Mm -hmm. at least in the segments that I was running into. So, so, I could create my own future, my own destiny with uh with this and as as I was you know learning how to make more and more money, gradually I got better and better at it mm. you know that that sense of uh of freedom just grew, and uh you know it allowed me to make bigger and bigger and greater things
0: De- definitely and uh, you know i you can see that through through your career you know um I can go through it here real quick for the for the folks unless you want to give a quick recap um right. I can give a quick cap. Yeah, of, absolutely, like. please. Uh, yeah, yeah, so so you know, my crew started
1: off with a French space agency. Um, and and I I got into that job because I'd had a um uh, uh internship at JPL. And uh uh I, I can come back to how we ended up there. That's a whole other story in another sure. self <laughs> involves university. And uh, you know, they were they were working with the uh, French and Soviets back in the 80s. And you gotta remember, okay, now now at least right now, people get you know that the Russians are these bad people and all this stuff's going on in Ukraine well Soviet Union was was like amped that up a hundred times and we weren't supposed to be talking to the Soviets and but but I was uh, you know I've never listened to anybody's uh, advice or rules very well so so uh, that went along very well but you know we we were quite co- co- cooperating with them informally on a Mars mission uh, the French and Soviets had a mission to Mars that was going to go on a Soviet rocket and you know, in the U.S., we had Challenger, which had blown up, and we weren't doing a damn thing. So it was a frustrating time for us. And so uh, my first my first job then was over at the French Space Agency, and I was working on a on a Mars balloon mission, and I was in charge of what was called the Snake. And the uh, the Snake was a artificial payload that would that would be below a a Mars balloon, and as the balloon would cool at night, it would come down to the surface, and the Snake would drag around with mm-hmm. a, a subsurface radar in it. And so I was in charge of that. And then, then the Soviet Union came apart. And that wasn't uh that wasn't a good outcome because uh the, the uh the, the people who were working on it ceased to get paid once the Soviet Union fell apart. And uh so so the program kind of came apart. So I came back to the US yeah. Yeah. within about uh three months. Uh s- s- somebody from uh, one of the intelligence agencies discovered through my boss Frank Red that uh I, I spoke Russian and I knew. About the Soviet, in, you know, aerospace industry, and so he approached me to to help out on a program they had to stop brain drain. And you know, given that nobody was being paid, um, the, uh, the the whole business of uh, nuclear weapon scientists and, and guys who build ICBMs uh, was was of great interest to the United States because you know, there's the Iranians and the North Koreans and a number of other third world countries. were going to pay these guys very well to come, you know, lend their expertise their programs so we you know we sort of parachuted into the former Soviet Union with this government money in our pockets to just do stuff right and mm-hmm. it was uh uh you know at that time I was pretty fearless uh, uh I, I would I say, say. Without, without fear right not yeah, not fearless yeah. but without right. fear
2: right and
1: that's more of a position of ignorance than it is a uh, sort of a you know a bravado and uh <laughs> it, trust me uh <laughs>
0: So we we did a little bit of that in college as well. So I can can relate to that. We
1: all start out out that way, but uh, yeah. So, so, you know, we, we helped convert some ICBMs. That was part of what we did. And, Mm. and uh, we uh, did a joint uh, uh, missile defense program with the one group and uh, we built something that looked like a nuclear weapon and launched Mm -hmm. it and reentered it uh, study the bow shocks and so forth. And, you know, part of a group that brought back a nuclear reactor from, uh, from the space nuclear reactor from the Soviet union. And I think it's still in New Mexico because we couldn't re export it, but, uh, yeah. So that all ended in 96 when, uh, I got arrested for espionage by the Russians and held under house arrest for about two months. And that was another learning experience of sorts. And uh, Mm. I'd say a watershed moment in my life. (laughs) uh, Uh, so I, I, I still went back after that, but, uh, I got wow. out of this particular program and, uh, was, 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 was doing sales, um, for space dynamics lab in Utah. And then this is about the time when Elon Musk calls me out of the blue in uh, 2001. And he, uh, he had, he had got my name from Bob Zubrin who mm. tried to help extract me from France when I was trying to find a job away. Oh, back.
0: Wow. Uh, yeah, wow. So
1: I'd read Bob's article. He was still at Lockheed Martin, but I'd read his article about, uh, uh, you know, going to Mars on a, on a, a diet, as he called it yeah, <laughs> it in aerospace America, as I recall. And, uh, so I just called him up, you know, I say, Hey, Bob, I love your article, blah, blah, blah. I'm working on this Mars program in France. And Hey, do you have a job for me? You know? So he arranged all these interviews and of course they didn't want to hire me because I was a, I was a, I was a trader of sorts, but, um, so, so, so at any rate um, Elon calls me, uh, because he got my name from Bob and uh, Elon had showed up at a Mars Society meeting in Palo Alto and you know said hey he wanted to do something with his money yeah. that he'd uh, made from uh, from PayPal he'd just been fired from PayPal by the way most people hmm. don't know that but uh, I didn't know that uh, so, so he calls me it was July of two thousand one and you know it was this famous phone call where he just rambled on about you know multiplanetary species and I thought the guy lost his mind and I really. <laughs> really didn't know who he was and we dealt with a lot of internet uh billionaires and millionaires back then you know the gross brothers for example had mm-hmm. uh started uh, a lunar uh company and uh they had ideal lab down there in pasadena and would take mm-hmm. those guys over there at one point and so so it wasn't anything that unusual in that sense but but elon was was quite different in his uh sole focus on what he wanted to do and so we we worked on that mission and uh, tried to uh, uh, get them changed. We changed it to a Mars mission. So then, then there was the famous storm. We can come back to it if you want to,
0: but you can. Read about I, I did it. want to ask about that. That's it's, it's okay. a, definitely right. a legend.
1: <laughs> we'll go back to that. Absolutely, skip over it for a moment. So, so we couldn't buy rockets from the Russians, and uh, we. That's when we decided to start SpaceX. So I was there for. Uh, I was with Elon for about eighteen months, something like that. So mm. I bailed early, um, thinking that uh, there's no way SpaceX could be successful uh, based on the economics. My my rationale was sound at the moment, but it wasn't uh, based on any r- realization that Elon become what he is. Right? I probably would have yeah. tried to hang on longer had, had sure. done it. it difficult. It was very very difficult for me to deal with. Yeah. And I, I talked about this freedom thing earlier. Mm. You know. So so my flight gene was just going off with him. So I left. Mm. And yeah, start my own company, Strat Space, and. And, and made a lot of money I, I made a lot of money doing satellite work uh, a lot of classified stuff space warfare mm. and uh, consulting in general and then ended up with about 50 people at one point and uh, about 2010 I just I woke up one day and and uh, you know I'd become more and more libertarian as I got older mm. and uh, not believing the government was a solution to to our problems and I woke up And I just said, "What am I doing? You know, I'm I'm making my living off of the government. I don't believe in it. I'm a hypocrite." And Mm -hmm. besides that, I knew you know what Snowden was about to announce. I didn't know he was going to announce it, but I knew about Mm -hmm. that stuff. And I I I just became uh, a a conscientious objector to that and the war. You know, my son's friends who were little kids, you know, that I watched grow up, you know, come back with arms missing from the war, and and I felt materially affected by that. I really did. I I felt sort of guilty, you know, for having been part of the machine and wanting it to, because you know, I made money on it and, sure, and sure. I just, I just felt horribly guilty. So I walked away from it all and I said, mm-hmm. I'm done. You know, I'm done with aerospace. I'm done with the military. I'm done. <laughs> it wasn't I'm still a Patriot, but you know, I just didn't want anything to do with any of it. So I went into the automotive industry mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, started a company called vintage exotics. And we did a lot of race cars and I did a lot of racing. I had a professional racing career for a while and, uh, that was great until uh, the startup started showing up at my doorstep. So like Skybox uh, Imaging was one of them. These guys mm-hmm. came out of the NRO and I knew them from there and we helped them get started and they they sold to Google for half a billion and that became part of Planet now.
0: Oh, wow. Familiar. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So they're bigger satellites are the ones we worked on way back, you know, at that time. So So suddenly all of a sudden all this, this commercial money, was like this freshness for me. It was like a new. It was a new life. It was a fresh start. Mm. And uh, they were building things, right? Instead of yeah. instead of just sort of thinking about how you're gonna make more money.
0: Theoretical. oh yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah,
1: we were actually building things. And in my mm. consulting business, I kind of ended up cynical, thinking, you know, well, I'll make money and I'll go build stuff, you know, cars, right. and, and that satisfies that. But but something was really missing in, in inside my art, and uh, that that these mm. these commercial businesses you're building a business, you're building value, you're building hardware. It was great. Yeah. So I got involved in a lot of them. I got involved in NiceEye. I got involved in New York State Systems, Moon Express. That was a whole other experience. Uh, uh, You know, 11 of them to be precise. And uh, the Paragon was one of them I ended up helping out. And uh, so, so about uh, 2015, uh, it became apparent from all these other companies I'd been helping start up and design their satellites and so on that the the thing I always ended up trying to fix was finding a launch for them. And here I am, you know, on my way back to Moscow to go look for another rocket. It seems like this recurring wow. theory. Yeah. And uh, uh, so, so, so I said, "Hey, you know, we need to fix this and build a um, build a small rocket like Falcon One because you know Chris Thompson and I." who was at SpaceX early on thought the Falcon 1 could be mass produced and that was kind of the solution to what we knew was a growing small sat world back in mm. 2001. So that we started that
0: That was early yeah. too to see that, yeah.
1: Yeah. So we started Vector and I thought, you know, I could go out and buy John Garvey's company Garvey Spacecraft, who mm. John went back to the the early days of SpaceX he never joined but he was part of that original crew. worked with elon and uh he had spent the intervening years trying to uh advocate and build out these small vehicles and he would made a bit of progress and uh, so we made a deal i started a company we made a deal bought his his uh, company brought him in as a co-founder and uh went to town raised money and uh that went on until 2019 until it didn't and we can come back to that in a while um and then uh once i left uh, vector, I could see it was uh, going to go bankrupt, and uh, so I started Phantom because uh, I knew that the need would still be here. And I, and as I looked around, nobody was really addressing what I thought the mission really needed to be, which is to make space access uh, uh, often and and ubiquitous. And you know, SpaceX has done a lot for space access. Trust me, yeah. uh, I'm not underestimating it at all. But they didn't complete the the sequence of things and. To, to have what I think a healthy space commerce is going to be, we have to have daily access to space. Mm. And so that's what we're really trying to do uh, at, at Phantom is to complete that cycle. So it's unfinished business from Falcon 1, really.
0: I, I love the thesis. It, it, it makes a lot more sense as, as I, we look back at your timeline here, what, what your, your approach has been. Now, with the other approaches of trying to make this happen, what is it about Phantom? That is doing it differently to as, as you guys call it, you know becoming like the Henry Ford of space um, right. what is it that phantom's doing that's going to that's going to achieve it this time?
1: yeah, so you know in in uh, August of 2019 when I left vector I, I spent about two weeks sitting in the swimming pool, you know nursing my wounds, mm-hmm. and then my 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 colleague Mike d'Angelo, I knew him from moon X and he was also my c o o at uh, at vector had left, and he kept calling me saying, let's do something, you know? And uh, so as we thought about it, we really said, well, we got to start with a clean sheet, right? We have to start with a clean sheet. Technically, we have to start with a clean sheet on the business case. And uh, so, so we, you know, we had the benefit of COVID, which was on its way. We started in October of 19 and it started to ramp up and then COVID hit and we, you know, we laid everybody off, but that gave us an, an introspective period where we started to think about how you really make money in this business, first and foremost, how you have an impact on the commerce and, and technically how you would do it. So if you go back to the original thesis of SpaceX, and, and Elon and I fought about this a lot, he wanted to build everything, right? He, in fact, he was so vertically integrated technically, at one point he asked me that he, he, was, he was interested in the scanning of aluminum alloy, which is a really strong and unusual alloy. Mm. uh that's used in baseball bats and the Reynolds I think Reynolds aluminum is the only ones that built that that, that makes this alloy so oh, interesting you wanted me to go out and find a scanium deposit and start a, a, a mine oh to, wow <laughs> that was <laughs> one of my tasks on my list you know and uh, that's how that's how vertically integrated Elon yeah is.
0: that's a, that's pretty crazy <laughs> right
1: so so uh you know but you know everything he wanted to do was vertically integrated and the only mm. I, I just wasn't of that mindset, right? And it took me a long time to kind of understand where he's coming from. And it, mm-hmm. in retrospect, I think he was absolutely correct for the time. Uh, two things: one, if you buy piece parts from the military industrial complexes that existed, then you lock yourself into their into their pricing. And his point, and I think he's absolutely right, was you couldn't reduce the cost substantially and be beholden to those supplier networks because they were built upon really looking like their customer, which was U.S. government. You know. It, and, and one of the things you learn if you've been in this business long enough, it's kind of like old people that have been married many years. They start to look like each other and talk like each other. And same is true of clients and, and, and suppliers, right? So,
2: mm-hmm.
1: so Lockheed Martin starts to look like the government and sound like the government and act like the government Boeing because mm-hmm. they're like a married couple. And uh, so, so Elon was quite right about all of that. The second thing was, and I didn't really appreciate this till later was that that and he never voiced this, but I see this now is if you if you do buy into that supplier network, there are always people that can come back and and nail you to the wall and manipulate you and retaliate against you mm-hmm. when you start to become a competitor to them so so he created an ecosystem completely outside of this. It's kind of like what he's doing now with Twitter. You know, he's he's mm. he's openly declared war on a certain part of society, a philosophically mm. oriented part of society, and he feels like he's he's outside of their ability to hurt him, right? Mm. <laughs> and so that's exactly what he was doing here. And uh, so so we looked at all of that and said, well, we don't think any of that's really true anymore, to a large extent. If you if you look at all the money that's gone in to the uh, the industry. There's a tremendous amount of supplier network that that's occurred that you can use to your benefit. So hmm. the biggest thing for us was engines, and I knew from my vector experience, our engines what were the, what were the real problem? They they were lagging behind on yeah. schedule, and, and uh, okay. you know, the, 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 full, development. the, yeah, the oh, development
0: Yeah, the development to get the engine out and and working where you needed it to be. Expensive,
1: yeah. and it's and it's also time consuming, and the more the engineers worked on it the more time they thought they needed for it. And uh,
2: yep. <laughs> it was
1: hard for me to argue with them because I wasn't in there with them, you know? And right. uh, that's, by the way, that's a strength of Elon's management technique because he's on the inside of every one of those things. I think yeah. that's one of the reasons he's been successful. So- Talk about so vertically
0: integrating everything, yeah. <laughs> to do that, you have, he, he had to become part of every
1: decision. Yeah. You know, people yeah. tell me about how, Small in the decisions he gets, like uh that you know the second flight of the Falcon one um he made a decision uh that I forget what it was it was a very small decision he overrode all his engineers and it caused the failure but the oh, yeah, it's the slosh baffles he he said we didn't think he needed the slosh baffles, he didn't want to pay for them in the tanks, mm-hmm. and the thing suffered from from slosh and it it spiraled out of control. This so, is the one that,
0: that exploded mid mid flight I think it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that's, so, that's, so a anyway, yeah. <laughs> that's a lesson to learn. Yeah. That's a lesson to learn. So, you know, for us, the biggest risk has always been engines. And if you look historically at a lot of other rocket companies, engine development is the most expensive and risky part of it. Sure. So I'd been talking to a Major, you know, prior at, at Vector, uh, sort of quietly, but, uh,
2: mm.
1: you know, Mike and I went up and made a visit with them and really, really liked what we saw. I mean, the first, first major engine i saw reminded me of a ferrari v12 mm. and i just said these guys if they make something that beautiful it has to run great it's mm. kind of like an airplane if it's beautiful it'll fly right it's ugly yeah. it won't fly you know <laughs> that's how i feel about machinery about engines you know and yeah uh, so we, we you know we bet our future on them mm. and i think we bet well um and so we went around you know the rest of the, the rest of the rocket we're like well what can we buy and there's a, there's a whole plethora of, of electronics and so on you can buy we license the avionics from NASA we we licensed right. the uh software for $25,000 and and it worked the stuff works right, right. so so we yeah. cut years and tens of millions of dollars off our development costs mm. so we became capital efficient so one of the things that made us different in the beginning was you know given a start in 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 uh you know 2019 we thought that that Silicon Valley was fished out as far as rocket companies go hmm. and and new money. So I said, look, we're gonna have a hard time raising money. So we need to keep the keep the costs way down if, uh, as much as we can.
2: Hmm.
1: And uh so so that was part of our basic planning. And that was part of our motivation to to go to the supply chain. And boy, were we ever right, you know, if you look at what's going on right now. Yeah, uh, you know, you've got companies that are spending 40 and $50, $50 million a month. And having flight failures. And uh, you know, yeah. we're 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 spending, you know, a fiftieth of that wow. uh and getting by, right? So because yeah. we don't have 150 guys to 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 support, you know, we're 35 people wow. and uh, they're all high performance, you know, like-minded individuals. We right. we think of ourselves as sort of a you know, like a special operations team, you know, that's kind of I how like that. we yeah. operate. Yeah. So uh so there's that. And then the second thing is just getting the size right and that was the the other lesson from vector was uh you know the the size was too small i think astra suffered from this a little bit and and i you know i think that they made all the right decisions at the time just like we did with vector but as time went on we started to see the average mass demand grow and uh, the the market Mm -hmm. was wanting something in the four and five hundred kilogram range so rather than just say well that's the right number I spent a great deal of time going through market data and projections of markets and, uh, you know, likelihood of being able to pair satellites together and where they would fly to. And I I created a curve that showed the profitability of a, of a launch company based on mass production. As it got bigger, you could produce less of them and you had less learning curve savings. And there was this massive peak of profitability around 450 kilograms. So I said, that's the, that's the one, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so so that's 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 sort of the first part of why we're different and so we start off just making rockets but we realized suddenly as we looked at SpaceX and we began to think to ourselves you know what would SpaceX look like if it started 20 years later and it didn't have Elon's desire to go to 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 the to Mars mm-hmm. and you know cuz that's always been the number one reason for right. SpaceX
0: your your first yeah conversation at the the Mars Society with him that, that whole mission you guys went to get the rockets for was to go to Mars. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So so you know, in and, and people ask, you know, what's the future of SpaceX in this business? Well, all the resources are gonna to go to, to Starlink and then and then Mars, and that's that's it. Because Starlink pays for Mars. If you look right. at the valuation of SpaceX, about twenty, twenty five billion of that is due to the rocket, and the rest a hundred billion Starlink. Yeah. you know, that's a very valuable piece of real estate.
2: Definitely.
1: So, so, um, you know, we said, look, sort of ripping off that model th- he's used launch as a strategic advantage. So he's been able to control the deployment of his constellation by owning his own launch. He does it at his own cost, his own priorities on schedule internally. And, uh, it's like, it's like a separate assembly lines going on, you know, Starlink gets priority mm-hmm. over everything.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we said, we said, look, the way to make more money in this business is to solve the problems to create applications in space
2: mm. and
1: so so we stretched our business model to go all the way from rockets to space applications that include satellite manufacturing it just so happens our first year in business uh i had a friend who just left the pentagon who uh, was building a constellation of uh, of radar imaging satellites that gave us mm. a contract for our first satellite so we ended up becoming cash flow positive our first year out Building a satellite. Yeah. So, so we're already in the satellite business. uh, And so, so we we have a uh, couple of constellations that we have deals with where we build the satellite, design, build it, fly it on our launch vehicle. And uh, we do, you know, a little bit of upfront financing for them uh, Mm. by doing things at our cost, uh, passing that along. We get rev share on the back end. So, so that's been a very popular part of the business model. And Really, what we're after is to try and create value through applications and uh, you know using using our launch vehicle because everybody has to launch as, as really the strategic asset that allows us to do things other people
2: can't.
0: That's great. I mean, the game is really in space apps, the 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 next level. I I see Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin are you know, their whole orbital reef platform is based around that whole idea space of space apps yeah, yeah, space apps, just a place to do space apps. Um, right. Yeah, and and the satellite side of things, you know, I, I did my um, my research in school on uh, on Cube satellites. Uh, so we we designed a mission for you know taking solar weather readings, um, and even just that alone. I mean, CubeSats open up space applications to a, a whole a whole slew of things. Uh, are you guys small t- microsat to full sats, or are you guys limiting yourselves in that, or is it pretty open ended? Well- It's probably
1: limited to mainly what we can launch, although we have an exception. We have a contract with uh, something I'm not at liberty to say the name of, but it'll get announced a little bit later this year. It's a multi-billion dollar private space science mission. Uh, So we can't launch it, it's too big. (laughs) But uh, uh, apart from that, we we tend to stay under 500 kilograms. So like our, uh, our radar satellites were ESPA class. Uh, the yeah. one we're still actually on contract building those Uh and they're, you know, about 250 kilos and then all the way down to CubeSats. Yeah. So, you know, nice. when it gets to CubeSats, we, we tend to rely on the uh, on the supply chain for that. Um, But as you get to the bigger stuff, like like our engine new contract for IOT, we use our, our avionics off of our launch vehicle because uh, it also works in space just fine. We use that as Great. the core of our of our 24U satellites. Yeah
0: yeah it's really interesting you guys have really accelerated uh most it's it seems from my experience again i'm i'm rather young you know 32 and i i haven't worked in too many of the aerospace but i work in tech uh and additive and uh, there's actually a lot of folks from the satellite industry that have moved into the tech space because in in their mindset satellite industry moved too slow like they would work there four years and you never even saw anything launch so it's um uh, you guys seem to be uh, jumping that and I, it's, it's just that it seems like a great time to do that um a lot of the old stuff that it, the industry is plagued with things taking too long and then they cost too much and the, then the funding gets cut i mean that's kind of well, been nasa's story for the last decade
1: th- that's always due to, to launch though uh, mm. if you trace it back so if launch is scarce in other words. If there's not more launch slots available than there are things to launch, then that's scarcity. And Mm. so it gets rationed. So so the price goes up. And when you have the price of your launch go up, the price of satellites go up because nobody's going to launch a $10 satellite on a a million-dollar launch slot. They just don't. And so if you can break that paradigm, this is the core idea behind what I'm trying to solve if you can break that paradigm so that there's a surplus of launch capability and you can build your stuff quickly, fail quickly Mm -hmm. and cheaply, there'll be much more innovation and, and it'll, it'll draw in more innovative people and it will draw in more innovative ideas and space applications. Mm -hmm. Until you do that, we're we're stuck in this sort of pseudo government slow
0: mode. Unfortunately. Yep. Now, as a, yeah someone who graduated in 20 you know let's just say 2012 um the industry had dried up after space shuttle already at that point so yeah, yeah. And, and and shuttle was another example of just you know us losing our 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 launch capability right we lost our launch for humans and i think SpaceX has gobbled that up um they've definitely yep they've definitely taken that and that's going to be a lot of work for SpaceX that human side of things I
1: yeah, I think it's gonna be that and, and launching Starlink and then sending mm-hmm. people to Mars and the Moon with their with their uh, spaceship. Yeah. I don't think they'll be focused on commercial launch at all in the future. There's no need to.
0: Yeah. No, and there definitely seems to be a large amount of people, you're you know, Phantom included, that are looking to, to take up that uh, you know, that portion of it. I mean it it, it correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems like in uh, the sh- the end of the shuttle era, there was this promise. Let's say 2000s. There was this promise that you know, space app, space business, price was going down. We're going to be able to launch more. And then it just the whole industry got sideswiped with the shuttle getting retired. Um, Would you say that's accurate?
1: I'd say it actually started long before the Mm -hmm. the time that you're pointing out. I mean, the the, the promise of the shuttle. I remember the beginning of my career was, oh yeah, you know, you can just put stuff in the bay of the shuttle and they'll they'll launch it for you know five thousand dollars a pound.
2: Oh wow! Was,
1: <laughs> oh yeah, I I dug up some references. I got a white paper I wrote on this. It was down around two hundred twenty six dollars a pound. Was one reference, you wow. know. So that's how that's how pie in the sky
0: NASA was about it. <laughs> that's a promise, yeah.
1: Right, and and so you know, Gil Moore, who passed away recently, started the, the the getaway special canister, which became sort of the 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 predecessor to the CubeSat. Frankly, uh, in fact, one of, one of his guys, Bob Twiggs, uh, worked with Gil in the early days. and Bob was the, really the inventor of the CubeSat. That's but it started cool. with Getaway Special. And those guys, you know, would would have a canister that, that if hell broke loose inside and everything caught fire, wouldn't matter to the shuttle. You know, it was just contained in a canister. And so students were free to do what they wanted to do. But that was supposed to be a commercial kind of capability as well. And, and NASA just couldn't get out of its own way. I mean, it's Sort of its own safety preoccupations, which are arguably deserved, uh, just just couldn't get out of the way of of the commercial necessities. So, mm-hmm. so you really the first thing you had to do was to break apart human space flight in sort of this you know wild western style yeah. commerce, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. which is <laughs> what we're talking about here. And yeah. uh, you know, I'm, I'm much more a fan of the wild west, you know. So, so the human space flight stuff never never attracted me like you say. And then by the time the mm-hmm. shuttle retired. That was one tired piece of hardware, you know, and, and I don't think any of us saw that coming. And and had I seen that coming at SpaceX, I might have stayed around longer. But I'll argue today still that SpaceX wouldn't exist if it were not for the shuttle retiring when it did,
2: mm.
1: because the, SpaceX got a billion dollars worth of uh, capital injection. Mm. And uh, they built with that billion dollars, they built the Falcon 9 and the Dragon. yeah. And, I can't think of a a more efficient use of public money.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's true.
1: I am. I'm just thrilled. Right. And the NASA antibodies that came out after that were were surprising to me, frankly, very surprising. Yeah. And they've been wrong. They've been wrong at every turn. Right. And, you know, people um, don't remember or they don't know that when Elon first started this whole endeavor, uh, they, he was considered a charlatan, a liar, and all sorts. I, I I was told a lot of things when I was taking around introducing him to people. I'd take him to places, and people would say, "Why are you bringing this this son of a bitch around here? You know, he's mm. he's 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 obviously a lunatic, and he makes you look bad." And mm. you know, I took him to the Pentagon, and I I had military guys say, yeah, "Don't be doing this no more." You know,
0: wow. <laughs> wow.
1: Once he was successful. Suddenly um, everybody's yeah, on his yeah. bandwagon, you
0: know? Oh, especially with Starlink and what's been going on in Ukraine. I mean, exactly. the military apps are, are a lot, a lot. Um, I think it's only the beginning of the understanding of that. But, so
1: this uh, is my frustration that I referred to, you know, when I was talking about the universities was mm-hmm. I had this gut sense you could do it better, right? But yeah. I couldn't yeah. quite put my finger on it. And I, that's still how I feel about the space industry. Mm-hmm. It's exactly that same feeling, but I feel it today. And, you know, Elon it, it felt that same thing. I mean, we had endless conversations about how inefficient the whole space business is and aerospace in general and the quality of the people. Blah, blah, blah. And and he just had this sense that it could be done better. He knew it could be done better. Hmm. And uh, he did it better, right? And and it's it's yep. been the thing that saved us from the Russian temper tantrum that they had. Oh, imagine. my
0: God. And to think, like, what would have happened if had that not happened, where we would be today? I mean, that, that, that would have been the death blow to the space industry, I think, if we didn't have yeah. anything.
1: Yeah, we'd be watching that big rocket go out to the pad and back and, oh, we got another valve leak. And, yeah. you know, before <laughs> long, we'd have made in Alabama up and down the rocket and then people signing it and Coca-Cola advertisements on it oh. and barbecue <laughs> signs this way, and you know, the damn thing never never launch.
0: Yeah. We have to talk about what funds this podcast, the 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 fuel, the, the, the source behind what brings this podcast out to you every single week, and that is our 3D printing lab, AG3D. And AG3D is here to help bring not only our own ideas into reality, which is literally what it's doing with this podcast, uh, putting it on its shoulders, putting the team on its back, but it also allows us to make a lot of fun stuff for the podcast, like for instance right here is our James Webb Space Telescope Coaster. Um, we design this, we 3D print this, and we actually 3D print these on de- on demand in our Etsy shop at ag3dprinting.etsy.com. Uh, that's the best way that you can help support this podcast if, if you want to. And the cool thing is you also get something cool in return. So we're literally making our own merch and um, it's something cool that you can have and use around the house. And if you have any ideas of what you'd like us to 3D print, obviously reach out to us. You can do that. Uh, follow us on ag3dprinting at Instagram. It's probably the best place. And then, of course, we also offer 3D printing services. You know, we are an, a shop that's open, so if you do need 3D printing, if you want something 3D printed, let's say you're a student in college, you've got a project. I guess it's the end of the year now, so maybe not. But let's just say you are you are a student and you're... you're your lab is busy and it's it's crazy project time and you want to 3D print, 3D print something but everything's busy or all the printers are down. We're here for you. If, if you're someone, you've got an idea like our friends at Snapcaller, we help them design some of the first prototypes so that they could see we have this idea of a business we want to do, of a problem we want to solve. Let's make a prototype and then go the next step with it they did that with us we helped them design and eventually they iterated to the point where they were able to win some competitions get some money some funding for those early early days and now they had a successful uh campaign they raised a bunch of money and now they are a business they're growing and it's so cool to see the final product out there and actually helping people and it's doing such a great job we help people with that but also just like if you want to 3d print anything man like we are here. Our Instagram page is a place you can go to see what's possible. I seemingly can't help myself, but 3D print things all the time. So all the 3D printer did was make all the things that I wanted to make up here actually possible. I've been doing this for a really long time. So I think a lot of people with 3D printing get a little scared because it's really intimidating, but we're here to help bring your ideas into reality and help you achieve the thing literally make it so that whatever you're writing on paper, on a napkin, that something, whatever it might be, we're here to let you know how we can do it. And if not, we'll point you in the right direction of the right way to go. So if you're interested, reach out to us at ag3d-printing.com. You can get a free quote for your next project. And then, of course, we support the podcast at any time by going to our Etsy store, ag3dprinting.etsy.com, and picking up any of the cool stuff that we have here, like the James Webb Space Telescope Coaster. We also have our rocket ship uh, phone stand, which is great for uh, any office space. I literally have one at every desk that I have at home, at work. Um, super, super helpful, and that's what we're about. So AG3D printing, bringing ideas into reality, and bringing the show <laughs> to, to, uh, to all the masses. So I only know about the story. I obviously wasn't there, but you actually were there on that that famous day in in Russia. I'm sure it might have been multiple days, but if I'm not mistaken, you guys were going there to pick up uh, rockets to send uh, an observatory to Mars to grow it plants. It was a lander, mm-hmm. and in that meeting, uh, actually, I, do, do you mind going through the story? Not all, so, not at all. Yeah, please. So,
1: so, so yeah, we visited two places. Um, and it was, I think, our third visit to Moscow.
0: Mm. And
1: Mike Griffin was with us. He doesn't like me saying so, but Mike's an old friend. Um, and and there's no conflict of interest with what he did with SpaceX later. I mean, it was all clean. But Mike just doesn't want, you know, to be smeared by history. But he was there, and uh, Elon and I, and we had, you know, made a couple of reconnaissance visits prior to this and visited some of these guys. And so our last visit was to go make a deal, right? And Elon said, okay, you know, we we had – looked at this, this, this uh, lander design, and it was a plant growth chamber, that we were going to grow basically weeds on Mars with the carbon dioxide from Mars inside this glass chamber, and uh, that, that it would spawn the idea of terraforming. So Elon, it's important to understand, thought in the early days that we had to do things to advocate the idea of going to Mars, to humanity, to people, particularly Americans, that mm-hmm. they wouldn't buy into it. He had no idea Everybody's pre-sold on this, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he, he thought that he had to sell them on this, and that yeah, was his idea yeah. with Mars Oasis. And so he he's always had the idea about bases on Mars, always, always, always. He used to carry around uh, on some of these trips, he'd, he'd show me these uh, Mars-based plans, that he had people drawing, you know, just sort of wow. sketches. And and at and one, one point I said, Elon, I said, put that son of a thing away because you know, the, the, you're crazy enough telling people we're going to do what we're going to do. But now you're talking about Mars bases. It's kind of like talking about aliens that came and visited you, you know, it's mm. like, really I'm like, don't, don't do that. It, we, it, our life is hard enough. Right. So, so you got to imagine here I am with this 20 uh, something guy. He doesn't dress well and neither do I, but I, I dress better back then. You know, the Russians are very uh, old school and they, you know, mm. they like ties and it's a sign of respect and so forth. True. And here he's, he's dressed like you and me, right. Yeah. And he's yeah, over yeah. in Russia yeah. trying to buy a deal. So, so we go first to Machine Stroya, and they 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 built, I think it was the SS eighteen, uh, which they had a uh, version called Strela, which was a launcher. And and we'd done our our homework that that we looked at this uh, this lander, and we could land we could launch it either on a Strela out of Russia or a, a SS nineteen, which was the Neper.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, so we went to the, the this Machine first, and it was it was November, as I recall. Yeah, and it's always snowing in Russia. I mean, it's, <laughs> it could be June. It's snowing in Russia. Wow. <laughs> that, that's at least my, my recollection. Right. And uh, so we show up at, at this big, huge walled factory and concrete walls, you know, 20, 30 feet tall with razor wire across the top. looks like a prison. You get to these huge, you know, iron gates and, and, you know, we always had a driver and and uh, they had a had a guard shack and, you know, the guard calls in, so we get let in, and uh, then we step into the courtyard. And then we have to wait for him to open the front door. You know, it's not like there's a, you know, a receptionist and a, right. and a nice warm reception area, anything like that. You've got some more prison doors and, and these big steel doors, and so we ring the doorbell, and we wait, we wait, and we kick the snow around, and we talk, and finally, you know, you hear all the the locks, and the door opens. And uh, this guy guides us in and uh, we go down this long hallway. It's really wide. And, uh, <laughs> it was just as cold in the hallway as It was outside, no heat. And, uh, Elon's looking around and, and some of the doors are covered with, uh, with vinyl and padding. Right. And he says, is this an insane asylum? <laughs> and I said, no, those are important people. That's how you can tell, you know, their doors are padded <laughs> and why I don't know, but that's the way it was. And, uh, so so we got down to the main sort of uh, uh, conference room and it was it was this large room with sort of these drapes these uh, semi-transparent drapes that had this sort of uh, faint light coming through this faint winter light coming through and uh, it was it was very well lit but it was just this this odd kind of diffuse light and uh, this long center table and all these Russians you know they're all dour faced and skinny and you know, looking to this food waiting to waiting to chomp on it, you know. And we come in and, you know, we're overweight, well-fed Americans and and uh, you know, say hi, shake hands. And of course we have to endure toasts first. So 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 in case you've never done business in Europe, you don't just walk in and do business, right? You start with the socialization
2: mm-hmm. and,
1: you know, you, you get to know each other and you talk about your families and find out about the other person. Maybe you break bread and have lunch or whatever. Then the last 10 minutes of your visit, you do business, right? That's the serious mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. America is just the opposite, right? So yeah. we consider <laughs> the Europeans rude as hell when they do that. And they consider us rude as hell when we do our part. You know, I mean, so <laughs> here we are, we're like chomping at the bit. We want to, we want to get this done, right? We want to. Are you going to sell it to us or not, right? And so we go through all these these toasts and the vodka and all this shit and eating and and you know so on and and there's a chief designer there. So so like startup CEOs are probably the closest thing to to what they have in the Soviet Union the chief designer mm. and it's sort of this technical expert that leads the organization and uh, really a startup CEO, but they're, they're they're chosen because of their political reliability plus their technical blah blah. So the so the chief designer's there. And after we get done with this, you know, most people clear out, and uh, we had an audience with just the chief designer and the, and the interpreter, and a couple other people who were standing back. And uh, so Elon starts to explain this whole thing about, you know, multi species and humanity, and we have a backup plan and all this stuff. And I'm noticing, I'm watching this guy, and they don't know I understand Russian, but th- th- I'm watching this guy, and he's just getting aggravated, and you can just tell... <laughs> And uh and his interpreter was was uh you know interpreting to him sort of loosely, it wasn't quite correct. And uh, so at any rate, they they got uh they got to the part about you know buying rockets and, and uh the, the guy turns and he and he just he spit on Elon's shoes and they spit on mine just like that, just kind of he didn't you know put a big chunk on us, but just right. a little bit. Still and Elon turns to me, he says, I think. He spit on us, and I said, "Yeah, yeah, it's a sign of disrespect." And he goes, "He goes, oh, he goes, well, I think this meeting's over with, you know." And, yeah. and I heard, yeah. I heard Mike Griffin in the back. He goes, "Well, thank God for that, you know." I mean, Mike, Mike was raised by an army colonel, so he's pretty direct. And uh, so, so we we left the meeting, you know. And it, it, at this point, you know, when things are breaking up, the chief designer starts into this, this. He's really angry, and then. When he was talking to us, he was spitting at us while he was talking too. Wow. <laughs> just because it was just coming out of his mouth. Yeah. It was kind of gross. But anyway any rate, you know, the interpreter wasn't in you know interpreting it. And he, he basically was saying this is a machine of war, it's not a toy for a rich kid. You know, you take your internet bullshit mm-hmm. money and go home. And you know, we're we're here for serious people only. And you know, so I'm not I'm not interpreting this, but I'm I'm listening to it as we're putting our coats on and stuff getting ready. it's like you know chasing us out like a pissed off mother-in-law and so we we leave and uh, the next day we went to um to Mich- uh not Machu uh, destroy but uh uh Ohel oh for the for the uh, nepper so um Cosmotross. and uh, they were in downtown it was a in a nice little little house that you know they'd stolen from somebody prior to the revolution i'm sure and a uh, nice yellow place kind of kind of nice bright you know and so forth quite different because they had done business with with Thiokol, which was the the guys who used to make the shuttle boosters mm. uh on some on some demilling projects to instead of dumping their 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 uh propellants in the ground they they the US paid to turn into uh uh fertilizer and mm. uh, so these guys were a little more sophisticated right
2: yeah
1: and and so we sat down they gave us some coffee it was morning time and they jumped right into the business right it wasn't it wasn't all this slow, irritating nonsense. And, uh, so there was three of them and three of us and, you know, Elon just right. He says, we want to buy two of your rockets. So I've got $8 million. And they, they said, no, you know, we, we're, we're not, we're not interested in selling you, uh, two for 8 million. We'll sell you one for 8 million. We knew the university of Surrey had been buying them for two. So we thought we gave them a you know pretty good price. Yeah. But, yeah. um, they uh, amongst themselves were talking and they were calling him a little boy. Right. Mm. <laughs> like, i like, this is not going not well. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, you know, and then finally, uh, Elon said, well, I guess we're done, you know? And uh, so we, we uh, had a plane to catch. It was Delta flight 31 back to New York. And as we got, uh, got to the airport, we were, we were quiet. You know, I remember walking out and thinking, you know, this was a gigantic waste of time. And uh you know it's kind of depressing because you know we're not gonna build anything right <laughs> and I'm thinking yeah, here we right. go There's another year of my life, you know, getting to this point, point. and uh we're sort of sitting on the plane, and uh Mike and I are sitting next to each other. It wasn't very full. Elon was maybe two rows up from us, and uh you know he's on his computer you know when the when the fight takes off, you feel like you're on sovereign territory again you feel you feel safe and uh so we ordered whiskey, Mike and I, and we're drinking whiskey and starting to feel it and it's good. And uh Elon's working away. To, he drinks coke. He's a teetotaler, he doesn't drink much. Yeah. And uh yeah. so 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 at any rate, uh Mike says to me, he goes, uh, what the fuck do you think that idiot savant's doing? <laughs> I said, so I don't know, plan nine to save humanity. You know, he's probably gonna work on that next. Mm-hmm. And uh Elon turns around and he goes, No, I think we can build a rocket ourselves. And Mike looks at me, and I looked at him. And Mike says, "Oh, Elon, nobody's ever done that. That's an original thought." He says, "There's <laughs> only like a whole graveyard of dead bodies out in front of you. you got to walk over to get there, right?" Yeah. And he goes, "He goes, no." He says, "We got a spreadsheet. I got a spreadsheet myself, Mike. <laughs> nobody's ever done the spreadsheet before. Why did I think of that?" And, you know. So he he says, oh screw you too." And he hands the computer back. And uh, sure enough, he had this great spreadsheet. You know, and uh, he was. Uh, he was working on it, and, and you know, so we started looking at it. And we're, you know, like, oh well, you know, so this structure's a little light, but it was good. We we're like, where'd you get this? Did you do this yourself? He's like, no, no, I had some help. You know, so Chris Thompson and Tom Mueller and
2: mm-hmm, these guys
1: mm-hmm. had, had been working with him, and, and you know, that they uh, they had helped on the on the lander, but I didn't realize they were working on this rocket on the side. So it was yeah, the top yeah. of that. And uh, so he says, we're going to start a little company when we get home, and that's how SpaceX started.
0: Wow, right? <laughs> That's, that, that is the story, man. That's crazy. Um, so this is kind of a good segue. So you have, especially in business, especially in the space industry, you've experienced a lot of these moments where it, you could almost say that's the end. That's the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, walk through what happened with Vector um, in, in the vein of, you know, right now the economy is tanking undoubtedly there's going to be some businesses that are going to go under there's there's leaders right now trying to balance that type of decision how do you approach something like that and even with your team right now with phantom i mean you guys have done strategically really well you guys have had some good business in this time when you need the money um, what was it what was it about vector that you learned or that you took away or even how you approached that situation to try and ride out the ship and make it work
1: yeah yeah i mean i obviously I can't comment on a lot of the stuff that happened because it's still under litigation, but, uh, uh, you know, what I learned from vector was really three big, big lessons. I think the first is that the people that you, that you work around are one of the most important things you can, you can have. So your team and the individuals are extremely important. One thing I learned from the, 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 the Navy SEAL so I, I've worked around a lot of those guys mm-hmm. in my career, is they have a way they pick their people. They 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 grade people on a performance and trustworthy curve, mm. and they will pick somebody that's lower performance and higher trustworthy than somebody that's high performance, low trustworthiness, mm. right? And so that's that's the kind of dynamic you're talking about. You know, that it's brothers in arms that, that you can you can trust your life to, and but they have to be good. And they have to be the best. Yeah. And so so you know to skip that part. And to not continue to treat that all the way through the process is extraordinarily detrimental, right? Mm -hmm. And if you get it right, you get this magic that happens. And so at Vector, you know, I didn't choose well. And uh, so when we did Phantom, you know, I've been very careful since the beginning of using certain filters for bringing people in. And um, so far, we've only had to get rid of a couple of people. Uh and but we're quick about it. You know, we don't yeah. we don't let the poison develop. Uh second thing I learned was sort of the time nature of money. And I knew this, but you learn it only in the way you really learn painful lessons, right? And uh, uh so you never do anything with the money that you have in hand that doesn't either uh put forward your your next, you know, progress towards your next round raise or mitigates any schedule slip on your minimum viable product in our case our first launch
2: Mm.
1: and so anything else don't spend it right Mm. and so you Mm. wait to the last minute of the last day of the last year that you can possibly spend the money and then some on anything so so like you know we built out the factory uh at vector probably much sooner than needed to be we could have saved that money used it to to bridge the, the the gap that we found ourselves in when sequoia pulled out um had we not done that, but you know, even our investors were you know telling us, oh, you know, the VCs are saying you need to do this, you know, but it was the wrong decision. And clearly at, at Phantom, you know, if you take a tour of our factory, it's very modest. You know, it's a yeah. thirty-two thousand square foot industrial building. Uh, but you know, half of it has got the, the owner's personal stuff in it because we need, you know, we wanted to reserve the space, but he gave us a deal on it. So, you know, it just looks like a yeah. shithole, frankly, but, but well, bare, you know, bones. It's still, bare bones, you yeah, guys are doing just what you bones. need to do. Yeah. yeah so, so you just, you have to be super, super, super cheap. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's easy mm-hmm. to get distracted by a lot of things that seem to make sense. And you just have to use that optic. Does this advance our next money raise or does this guard against, uh, you know, slippage of the schedule? And if it doesn't meet those two, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't spend it. Um, and yeah. then, you know, yeah. so, sort of in the end, you know th- this other business of how do you manage people and uh i've i've become uh, a lot less nice and i was i was way too nice uh in trying to be empathetic to people and uh you know when when people aren't right you just got to rip them out and just got to get rid of it and uh this is you know in reality this is somebody else's money in a lot of ways in phantom i've got a lot of my own money in it but we also have a lot of investor money as well but all the same you know it's other people's money and the emotions you attach to somebody's being there or not uh, has nothing to do with what the investors see is the the outcome the, the, you know it's all about the the return on this. this doesn't mean you have to be inhumane but it what it means is you 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 don't hurt yourself by being overly humane and uh so so with phantom you know we're not having trouble raising money in this environment uh for several reasons uh one you know we're we're very capital efficient so we're you know, we spent $20 million getting to this point, um, whereas, you know, Rocket Lab probably spent a little over $100 million. I know Astra spent over $100 million getting to their first launch and so forth. So so we're, you know, not one of these companies where somebody looks at it and says, oh, we're going to put several hundred million more into it. I noticed Mark Markusic was removed today uh, from Firefly. So it's probably a spend sort of thing. I think there's probably some others that this is going to happen to. When you're spending that much money you know the investors get get nervous and they'll take you out right so mm-hmm. so uh you know it, it we've also got a unique story that I think people understand uh is is quite different we we're thinking about this as a business rather than a than a technology development it's not just the pure mm-hmm. joy of building rockets uh we 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 think of them as strategic assets as i mentioned and and people resonate with that i've always and all the businesses I've I've run until I got into these startups have all been cash flow positive from day one, and and that's kind of my basic instinct. And uh, so we've we've done well there. Uh, so so we're not we're not really suffering uh, yet. <laughs> it could change tomorrow. Sure, you know? absolutely, yeah, yeah. So uh, I I think uh, I think that this the other thing that's helping is aerospace is anti cyclical. Uh, in terms of the economy and the government spending, for example, never wanes during during a recession in, in the aerospace world. No. Uh, we've also got renewed uh, interest and recognition of, of, you know, the U.S. has enemies in the world that mean us harm. No. And uh, so there's this whole rebuilding, there's hypersonic weapons and problems there, and, and this whole threat to uh, space assets. And what we're building, I think, fits nicely into that Defense mechanism, which is something you know of a secondary objective of the company, was I always saw that we needed this rapid reconstitution ability, and the only way really to do that, in my mind, has been to replicate what the U.S. military does with the uh, commercial uh, airline uh, uh, policy that they have during during wartime. They've got the right to go out and, and command all the the, the uh, domestic airlines and say you're going to take our troops here. And uh, so, so if we have a commercial capability to fly daily uh, to replace assets, then then the military is going to be able to do it. And of okay. course, we'll be there to help. You know, because that's uh, that's what we do to our country.
0: What, what you guys are doing is um, it's it's a it's a big need in the industry, that's for sure. Um, and the country's need to to, to launch daily. Um, I mean, it's definitely not making i guess uh, other countries around the world very happy but um I, I think if you're if space travel and access to space lowering the barrier as as you, you guys have discussed um of access to space the the only way is to get that that launch rate to that point um right. you know, i think the demand seems to be there it's just it hasn't the supply of launches hasn't been there so uh, right. you guys are just just filling up what's what's already being asked for um S- space forces is, is ramping up and you know they are with everything that's going on with constellations and they're seeing the capabilities that's only going to, to increase um you guys have a hot fire test uh yeah. is it this month
1: so yeah nominally it's uh, probably the week after fourth of july
0: mm. uh, mm-hmm. we're,
1: we're in the middle of uh, stage level testing right now last week we had the the stage erected at, at our factory here in Tucson. We went through all the functional testing of the stage. It went pretty well. I mean, the second stage has all the the brains, if you will, of the rocket, has all the command and control. And, and so we're really testing the rocket on the second stage. So it's a big milestone for us. So we we, we did that first. Um, we had some uh, some mechanical issues that were in the middle of repairing. So we're gonna go back, we got through cryo testing. We're gonna go back and finish our cryo testing. Uh, hopefully repaired those issues and then once that's done uh, we're heading out to uh, new mexico to do the hot fire test and that exciting, should be a major 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 milestone for us
0: now and, and so what's the timeline for you guys after that you guys you guys are able to test it on the stand um 2023 is what i think i saw for you guys trying to launch first or at least being up and ready for yeah. customers
1: yeah first launch is you know about uh, august of 2023 and uh, you know everything seems to be coming together for that. We've got six engines delivered from our Major in our factory right now. Uh, most of those are test engines uh, for yeah. the uh, first stage, which will get nominally to, done at the end of the year. That'll give us about six months to assemble the the flight unit. And uh, you know we're we're in the middle of building the the flight tanks right now. Uh, so so we've already started a bit of that and. Uh, yeah, things are coming together pretty well. We we haven't really had any hiccups yet. That's not to mm, say we mm. won't. So we could have you know ABL blow up their stage and it set them back a ways. Yeah. Uh we could be the lucky ones. Uh I don't know. Uh, but you know, so far so good. And uh you know, we've got like a really experienced crew. It's great. A lot of our guys came from SpaceX and mm, Blue Origin mm. and Virgin and Astra, you know, and, and just mm. really experienced
0: guys. So uh, uh, that's it's exciting. Uh, and I could could see how that would be um, you know, as, as an engineer trying to work at a place like that, uh, speed. I think there's a whole generation of of people that like yourself where you had that feeling where people want to move fast and we'll figure out the science and we'll we'll figure out the the engineering problems, but let's go, yeah. let's do this.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's you know what motivates most of us. We're builders mm-hmm. and makers. And and that's one of the filters I use. To uh, get people who want to come work for us is, mm. you know, do, do you do anything at home with, uh, you know, with hardware and so forth, or do you, uh, uh, you know, do you just read books? Right, nothing wrong with people who just like to read books, right. but we're looking for people who uh, who build
2: hardware.
0: Right. Yeah. That that's going to be a better fit for the the stressful environment. That's just natural for you guys trying to go that fast. Yeah. No, that's, exactly. that's amazing. Um, Jim, we're, we're at the end of our time here. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Um, pleasure. Is there anything that you'd like to share with the folks or people who are looking to get into STEM, maybe are out of it and looking to yeah. come back in? What's, what's your <laughs> advice for folks like that?
1: Yeah, um, follow your passions, uh, do what you're good at. And, uh, uh, you know, do stuff that people want to buy. And you never have to worry about success, it'll happen. And uh part of all that is getting the right education, so be it. And I've seen people with all levels of education get involved in this. You don't have to have college degrees necessarily.
0: Yeah, especially on the maker side of things, right? You know, exactly. there's plenty of makers who, you know, do not have a, a traditional degree and know way Absolutely. more about how things work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, it's,
1: it's become a bit of a product that the people that give you the degree try to convince you you have to have that degree to, in order to be qualified to work. So mm-hmm. it's not true.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Still a valuable commodity, but it's not. Uh, it's not the only way to it.
0: Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um. Last question for you. Why three D printed engines? What's the oh. advantage there?
1: Um. Yeah. So it's not obvious that three D printing's the panacea that everybody thinks it is. Um. We're big fans because it allows you to make complex shapes very economically and mm. and repeatedly. And uh, so, so Ursa Major is doing most of that. We don't do any of that really in-house, uh, but they, they've done most of that and they become masters at it That's and uh, there's, there's real art to it. Uh, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a nascent industry. It's one of the very early uh, technologies that uh is, is still maturing very rapidly. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think over time we'll see more and more of it. It'll, it'll be one more tool in the toolbox, like carbon fiber structures. Yeah and uh, we we still see metallic structures out there but uh yeah
0: oh absolutely i I mean you know as working with metal 3d printing um on on the daily here so um i can definitely say it's it's (laughs) definitely like you said it it takes someone who understands it it's not something anyone's just going to be able to pick up it's not the magic bullet um but it seems like there's Having the ability to do complex shapes for a rocket engine seems like a very valuable thing, even in it just is. like putting more stuff in smaller spaces. Yeah, seems like a big advantage.
1: Yeah, the the, the biggest disadvantage is just the material properties and, mm-hmm. and the uncertainty in the material properties, sure. uh, because because it's a metallurgical process and in, in assembling all these these little powder elements into a into a, uh, essentially a, a structure. Yeah. You yeah. you have a lot of control issues on how that <laughs> comes together. So I'm a little bit of an amateur metallurgist. So it's uh that to me, that's the Achilles heel of the whole thing.
0: Oh, absolutely. And and especially, and I don't think a lot of people know this, but the the advanced materials of metals that aerospace has as a standard to yeah. be able to bring that up to that point as quickly as it needs to is just i yeah. think it's going to be a time thing it's going to take some time and more people looking at yeah.
1: complex alloys yeah i mean there, there mm-hmm. are enough to make into sheets and bars and tubes and things like that let alone you know grinding into a powder and using a laser to reassemble it that's basically what you're doing with 3d printing
2: mm-hmm.
0: amazing jim thank you so much My uh, pleasure. uh thank on the you. podcast i really appreciate you sharing your story Um, anything else that the folks should know about phantom and what's what's coming up
1: oh just uh just keep a watch out for us we're we're gonna we're gonna do this
0: awesome awesome looking forward to it um thank you everybody for joining us for another episode of today in space this was people of science with jim cantrell thank you very much spread love spread science we'll see you (laughs) next time